HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Chris Guzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Vermeer. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. It is it is February, and, oh no, it's not quite February, it's almost February, and it's cold, and I'm talking today with Valerie Seacrest, who's living in the evergreen rainforest in the Pacific Northwest. Hello, Valerie. Hello there. How's it going over there in your rainforest? Um going all right. It's been sort of a dry winter, but um, beautiful as ever. So, um, usually we're talking to, or usually we're talking to farmers, but you're, you're in, you're in, uh, located in a place that's not quite agriculture, that's um, in the forest and with people working on nutrition. I would love it if you would just um, introduce yourself as you like to be introduced um, in this context. Sure. Uh, my name is Valerie Seagrest, and I am a member of the Muckleshoot Tribe, which is um, located just 30 miles south of Seattle, Washington, at the base of the beautiful Mount Rainier. I work as a native foods educator and a community nutritionist for um my community and other tribal communities in the area. And I really specialize in the traditional foods that were eaten here and still are eaten here um, for thousands of years. And those foods are, you know, also known as common gourmet items like salmon and oysters and huckleberries. Um, and then other sort of unknown items like nettles and um, dandelion and horsetails. 
And so you're uh, helping people re-engage with the native diet and the wild plants that are around them. And how do you how do you go about that job? Well, for the past several years, I've coordinated the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project, which really aims to increase access to our traditional foods. Um, as most people know, many tribal communities uh, are experiencing epidemic levels of totally preventable diseases like diabetes and heart disease, which were not were not an issue um, when we were eating a diet that was based on our traditional foods. So um, we know that you know less than a hundred years ago, there was no reported case of diabetes or heart disease in Coast Salish communities, um, tribal communities from the Pacific Northwest, and that's because we were able to access our foods better. And so as a nutritionist, I really felt that um, my practice, if I really wanted to treat the root cause, would be about increasing access to foods in my community. So we do that through coordinating edible education, workshops, um, bringing out teachings of our traditional foods, like how to fillet a salmon, how to prepare an earthen oven, how to process a deer, hunting techniques, fishing techniques, um, and principles of a traditional foods diet because we obviously are in a modern food system um, and are you know, traditional and accustomed harvesting grounds, which used to be the mountain and the forest and the river exclusively, is now also Safeway and Albertsons and QFC. And so how do you walk through a grocery store and keep your um, ancestral diet in mind as well? So we help guide people through that process. The project also um, does food production um, inventories. So we find space on the reservation where food can be produced and um, and do feasibility studies around what foods might be eaten here more often um, and what how we might grow those foods to increase our food security here on the reservation. Um, we also do outside of trainings and food production, um, identifying food production areas, we also cultivate um, community knowledge and try to really create tools and documents that will help inform planning and forward thinking uh, around increasing food security for the future. So we just got done working on a project where we um, worked with 20, over 20 tribal cooks to develop food policy. Um, and those ended up being called cultural values and healthy food uh, protocols of our Muckleshoot kitchens because we felt like the word policy didn't really fit our culture. It's sort of authoritative, <laughs> and um, we are more of a protocol-based culture. So um, also maintaining that culturally appropriate method as we increase food security um, on a community-based level in, our, in the Muckleshoot community. And uh, that's the majority of the work that I've, I've been doing here for the last couple of years. And um, I have to say that it's actually mostly my community that's doing most of the work. I'm very proud of them and 
Um, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful healing time to be in. Well, this is very intriguing what you say about, um, you know, food policy and versus kind of protocols. And I, and I feel like it's very fitting as we're talking about, you know, this edge between our, 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 our domesticated landscape and our wild landscape, the, um, the land of, the land where we are growing crops in straight rows and the margins where we have a commons or what, you know, in different cultures are called different, you know, wastes or, um, you know, field, the field edge. And I just thought maybe you could, you could, um, speak a little bit more about, um, the kind of governance principles that you're bringing, um, to your work around wild foods. Sure. Um, well, the I, by the way, I really liked your use of the word the edge, which I think is. Uh, I just recently took a class on permaculture and have learned that the edge is the place where the most diversity is between you know where the prairie meets the forest. That space is the edge, and I really feel like that is the work of. Uh, tribes in the good food movement is to help people define that edge because we are trying to build a new food system for the future that can feed a lot of people in a really good way and um, employing the knowledge of tribes is crucial to the sustainability of the movement and to um, to guaranteeing its success in my opinion because tribal people of this land have navigated a food system here for thousands of years. We know that salmon has been a cultural keystone species for the Coast Salish people back 10,000 years, which is a tremendous amount of time and I think illustrates the depth of knowledge that tribes have on fisheries and um, fish management. So um, I think that together we can create, you know, an ancient food system and a new food system creating an edge that um, is incredibly diverse and healthier for the future. Um, and that's a principle. That's actually a principle that we think of in, in our work together. Some of the um, food protocols, the healthy food protocols that came out of the kitchens are uh, used to help design menus and um, those include things like traditional foods will be offered one day a week. Um, our dishes will be inspired by seasonal availability. Um, we're prioritizing our purchasing from local and tribal food producers. And... Uh, we want to make sure that we offer the best quality ingredients that uh, do not involve industrialized ingredients like high fructose corn syrup. So those things are not included on our menus. And we're also guaranteeing a home-styled cooking approach. So something from scratch. Uh, many tribal cooks feel that if they are just simply removing something from a package and heating it up, that it's not really cooking. But part of your your spirit really isn't involved in the preparation of that meal, and that's a really important part of the the medicine that we offer the our guests who come to consume our 
our meals. So um, those are some of the healthy food protocols that we have defined as kitchens in the muscle sheet. So this means that, you know, from our daycare kitchens to our tribal school to our youth center to our senior center, we're all operating under the same menu building guidelines and uh, telling one cohesive story across all kitchens, which is pretty significant in our communities as we know that we serve over a 1,000 meals a day. So we're um, reaching... Uh, plenty of tribal members. Uh, we have just about 3,000 enrolled in the tribe now, so that's a pretty big cross-section, and the, the cooks really see themselves as health practitioners in their work in that way, and that's pretty significant. Um, and another principle that we sort of operate by is to, to, we're not really doing anything new. We're not trying to invent some new system. We're just looking at the pre-existing one and helping to um, build capacity within that system, those leverage points to make something work like a well-oiled machine. And that means that we uh, we are using the knowledge that's already here and that has been here for a really long time. We often say that we're just helping people to remember what we already know to be right and true and just honoring that knowledge. Um, and quite often people will say to me, you know, Oh, Val, I don't know anything. I'm just a fisherman. But that fisherman has been fishing for over 30 years in the same waters and knows the landscape really well. And that, to me, is a PhD. You know, that, to me, is um, invaluable knowledge that that um, needs a space to be brought out in the community and needs, it's a voice that needs to be heard. And that's something that we really is the foundation of our, our food movement here in Muckleshoot. Well, it's it's incredible the work that you're doing. It's incredible the the well. It sounds how like how smooth it all sounds and how um, consensual it sounds. And I I I know that that's probably not the case in every in every institution. And certainly um, certainly an, a tribe is an institution like not like every other, but it has some of the same problems of getting all on the same page. And um, I guess my question would be, in thinking about how other people who are trying to engage, especially people who are trying to engage more in indigenous foods and within indigenous communities, and thinking in terms of codifying, as you're saying, codifying these principles of how we're going to operate as a tribe and how we're going to show our hospitality to others and how we're going to treat our children and how we're going to purchase our food. Um, just briefly, a little tiny bit about your approach to that um, and some, some maybe some readings or some, some guidance for young people who are, who are interested to engage in these topics about the approach that they should take in instituting these good ideas in, other, in more places. It's so interesting you bringing that up. I've been really sort of sitting with that question of how how is this really happening? Um, what are the elements that are at play here? And um, and yeah, I I would say that my um, the guidance that we get from our community and some advice I might offer to people would be um, to humble yourself. Um, you know, I'm a nutritionist. I went to school for nutrition, and I'm also a lover of plants. 
And when I first started this project, I was just incredibly overwhelmed at the responsibility that came with having some sort of program to design and coordinate and hold space for all that to happen. And quickly, um, quickly learned that I don't have to have all the knowledge. I don't have to be the expert to make it happen. Um, that if I'm truly relying on the community, then I can find uh, insurmountable amounts of courage in, the, in getting the work done because if you're truly doing what your community is asking for, it's written in the hearts of the people and you don't really have to worry about one person's vision, um, you know, taking over. Like you're not infiltrating anything. You're working with people to make something happen that um, that they've been asking for for a very long time. And also to, you know, the one of my teachers tells me, it's really easy, Val. You just go out there and you lift people up, <laughs> you know? And I think that's what people need now more than ever, that that's a major part of medicine is helping people to believe in themselves and see themselves as change agents in their own food system. And that's really what our food system is asking for. It's asking for us to be citizens and not consumers. And you you help people find their way in what is citizenship. How do I actively participate in my food system? Whether it be transmitting some knowledge, you know, around food preservation or harvest or identification or um, donating your time to harvest or grow new a new crop of huckleberries um, or teaching how to harvest camas or the ecological knowledge of camas, uh, prairies up here in the Northwest. So I would say that these are, you know, going out and fixing the food system is huge. It's big work, and it's never yours alone to answer, that there are always people around you who carry knowledge that is valuable. And um, a really good book that I read that sort of summed it all up for me, I can't remember the exact title of it, but I think it's called The Power of Community, and Frances Moore LePay wrote it. She co-authored it with another man. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, but that book is a short, quick read, and it just, like, I read it and just remember thinking, man, this is it. Like, this is what it's about. It's about people and and people seeing themselves as agents of positive change, um, people seeing themselves as health practitioners in their food system. And um, and that that has been a really powerful lesson. Just go out there and lift people up, you know. You lift them up and let them know that they're, what they carry is wealth. Their knowledge is wealth. Well, we better end right there because I don't think it's going to get any better. I want to thank you, <laughs> Valerie, for coming on the show. This is another episode of Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers and edge harvesters and cultivators. Thank you so much, Valerie. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, goodbye, everybody. I hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.